Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome along to the Howie Games, another September special for your ears. You are listening to episode 193 of the Howie Games featuring AFL star and so, so much more, Shane Crawford. Crawford is there. He might kick two in a minute. Two captain's goals, perhaps. Crawford is a genius. He's Crawford enjoying a bit more September glory. So this episode got a bit of a story to it. It was actually recorded back during COVID. Then I lost the files. Completely lost them. Somewhere in the depths of my Mac. No idea. COVID lockdown just wasn't good on so many levels. Then, last week, Croft gone, disappeared, never to see the light of day. Last week, poking around on an external hard drive looking for a video file, and there is bloody Croft. I couldn't believe it. Hiding in a different folder under a different name, he was actually titled Adam Scott. I don't know. So many questions, no answers. All I can say, as I said, COVID wasn't a good time. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Anyway, end result, Crawf is back and ready for you. So let's get straight into it. Creativity, TV productions, being a star, winning a Brownlow, a flag in his 305th and final game, charity work and so much more. Enjoy the great story, the long lost story of Shane Barry Crawford, a man prepared to have a go. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I. Come on children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion I. Welcome to the show, a man of many, many talents, Mr. Shane Crawford. Crawf, how are you? I'm well, Howie. Uh, hopefully you're going well as well. Yeah, I'm going very, very well. Um, obviously, as a Hawthorne fan growing up, I've seen you play a lot of footy, but you are so much more than a footballer. How busy is current life for you? Young family, lots of different fingers in lots of different pies. You're a busy man at the best of times. Well, I yeah, I don't and can't sit still. Um, I like to achieve things. I like to do things that I'm passionate about, and um, I think that's what obviously life's all about. And yeah, I just think that I seem to I seem to operate best when I've got lots of stuff going on. Although there's plenty of times where I I realise I need to slow down and take a deep breath at times um, just to get the balance right. But uh, I think that's just the way that I'm wired. I need I need distractions. I need other things going on. Um, and that was the same during my footy days. Is I needed other things to take my mind away from football. Otherwise, I was going to go mad. So all these different projects, is a desire to succeed, is it a, a desire to fulfil, to be creative? Why this constant what is next in your life, which is from the outside looking in the way you seem to roll, mate? Um, yeah, I, I'd like to be someone who could just sit back on the porch mm-hmm. and um, get on a rocking chair and go back and forth and 
But that's not the way that I'm uh, I'm wired. My mum always just said, you know what, just have a go. And if things don't work out, then sort of work out where to go from there. So I've always taken that advice on um, is just have a go. Um, try and do something you're really passionate about or find things that really make you want to jump out of bed. Um, you know, do it for the right reasons and... And that's, uh, and that, yeah, that's just the way that I've sort of dealt with things. Like, um, you know, obviously you have your family in the mix and then you as a person who, especially once you finish football, you still want to keep achieving. You know, you like to achieve things. You like to feel like you're still contributing um, to the world and, and feeling proud within yourself as well. So uh, that's just me. I'm happy to, to throw myself into things and try things fail at a lot of things, um, but it's pretty special when some things do come to life and you sit back and you're very proud to know that you were a part of that and um, not only just a part of it from, you know, in some situations in front of the camera but also behind the camera coming up with some ideas and creating some hopefully content that people can really connect with. So how long can you sit down for and watch something on Netflix or read a book or sit on your front porch without going... I haven't done this, or wow, I'd like to do this. Is there any downtime for you? Like, how do you, how do you clean your brain out? Um, how do you clean it out? Well, I do. I have become better at, um, you know, just trying to have those moments where you do switch off. I can lie in front of the TV if, as long as it's entertaining, um, whether it be something on Netflix or a good movie or a great uh, footy game, I can really connect with that. But um, no, this is the way, this is the way my head works is it doesn't want to sit still for too long. And um, yeah, got to make the most of the opportunities whilst you've got them. And can you watch those entertaining shows as entertaining shows or do you watch them and think, oh, I hadn't thought of shooting something like that because we'll get to the fact you're heavily involved in TV and TV production, but you can you look at it without looking at with a critical eye or a, mm, I could use that idea eye? No, 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 I, I can't. <laughs> that, that's the thing. It's, uh, it's a bit annoying and I, I normally have to watch things a couple of times just to the second and third time I can just actually appreciate um, how good it is and, and the, the journey that it takes you on. But, uh, no, everything I, I look at, even if it's a TV ad, I'm always analysing, um, well, I, I, I suppose it's like school for me. It's like, why did they do it that way? Why didn't they do it mm. this way? Oh, if I was in charge, I would have, did, you know, I would have attacked it from this angle or I would have been a bit braver on uh, I'm holding the, the camera and coming in from a moving, you know, just all the stuff that, no one else thinks about only people pretty much like yourself and I, um, you know, when we get in in front of, you know, watching some great content, um, you do analyse it in a different way and it does make watching things a little bit frustrating at times. We'll get to some of your TV projects, but I, I, we've, we've found out already in 10 minutes that your mind is constantly ticking. Is there on the horizon for you, without giving away your plans and future, a type of project you would like to tackle, whether you be in it or you produce it, is there a is there a golden television production idea for you somewhere down the line that you're working towards? My dream was always to make a movie because uh, I've watched a lot of poor movies in my time and I'm thinking how on earth did they get millions of dollars to make that crap? <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? There's some great movies out there but there's a lot of crap and we've got to be honest with that. But uh, I'm actually doing it as I speak. Um, I've been, I've put my hand up to coach a football team. I never really wanted to coach, um, 
because obviously I played with the Hawks for a long time and, and it's a tough job. The coaches put so much into it and it's such a, a draining thing. Even when you're doing well, um, you know, the the critics are there waiting to chop your head off. So mm. I thought, no, nah, coaching's not for me. I'd rather just have an opinion and throw it out there and we can move on and it doesn't consume your life so much. But I'm actually doing it at the moment. I'm coaching a team called... Ardmona, which is um, in near Shepparton. They're called the, Ardmo- the, the Ardmona Bushcats. I've watched them for about four years and I actually felt sorry for them because I went and watched them one day when we had to do something through the footy show about oh, three or four years ago and um, it was a battle of the battlers, battle of the worst team, uh, worst teams in Australia and they got flogged by 300 points. And so... I'm familiar with that area. I've got a lot of friends from around that area. So I've kept following them over the last few years and uh, they just kept losing. So they, they haven't been able to win for a long, long time. Um, last year, followed them right up, so much so that I went along to their last game and uh, just to try and get a bit of a read on what was happening and why they were so bad and how could I possibly help them in some way. And they lost by 52 goals. <laughs> 52 goals. 52 goals, yep. They, oh, no, I know. They lost one game last year by 62 goals. So um, it's fair to say they were struggling. <laughs> but what had happened by the end of the year, they got kicked out of the league. Um, so financially struggled, competitive, they weren't. Uh, there was still this great little club that wanted to be connected. Um, everyone stopped believing in them. And I just thought, no, we, we can't let a side disappear, especially in their 100th year. So um, so we all got together and we tried to, to get them back into the league, which we did. So they're alive for their 100th year. I'd been training them over Christmas and, um, and into the start of the year, which had been going really well. Uh, it's very raw. It's very, very laid back, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of real characters and it's all about that community. I've just been documenting that. I can't wait to see what you produce it into because knowing your manager footage, you shoot, it, it's going to be a big job to edit it. But just, just listening to you talking about it, you've got such a passion for it, which is why I've been really excited to talk about you because you've always been such a passionate man with anything you put your mind to. You're talking about a small country town. In some ways, I guess that's your upbringing, Shane, when we go back to the start. Yeah, I grew up in Finlay, New South Wales uh, with my mum, single mother, um, and an older brother, Andrew, younger brother, Justin, and I just loved all types of sports. Like, Finlay was a great little community, home of Tom Hawkins, and, um, yeah, it was just a great community where there was 2,000 people, everyone knew each other, everyone looked out for each other, and I just threw myself into everything, you know, whether it be BMX racing, whether it be hockey, (laughs) cricket, tennis, football, um, you know, I would just go for it because I just loved not only connecting with your, your mates and but it's about having a go and, and just trying different sports. So that was me. I was into everything. This is a question I should know the answer to. Um, it's a direct question. I might as well ask you anyway. You're a pretty open book. You talked about the fact you had a single mum. Do you have any contact with your father growing up? Uh, no, my father, yeah, not not a lot, Um he, like, although the times that I did have with him were always, you know, very good, and when I look at, back on them now, they're always pretty special um, to me, but it was never, you know, it was never a great deal. You know, I'd probably see him oh, maybe once a year if I was lucky, um, and I sort of crave that, but my mum, she was the mum and the dad. She had that hard edge. I was never going to do the wrong thing by her because she'd certainly straightened me back into line, and, um, yeah, she was... She, she was a reason that she spurred me on throughout my whole football career when I was 
finally drafted um, to go to the Mighty Hawks. She was she was my inspiration because when I was at Finlay um, and playing junior football, my mum could never come and watch me. So she would actually have to go to work at the RSL club. Uh, she even had two jobs at one stage where she'd work on the farm picking tomatoes and working on a potato farm and then she'd come in at lunchtime and then work the RSL club. So she was never able to take me to the footy or watch me at the footy. It was always I would go with uh, some of the locals, especially when I was out of town. And um, it wasn't until when I was actually drafted to Hawthorne that she could finally come and watch me because uh, obviously I'd moved on and, and she didn't have to look after me anymore. And And I got so much joy out of... When I'd play well, when the team would win, and I knew my mum would be so proud and so happy. So that was very much a driving force for me throughout my career. So as a father of a a pretty big family yourself now, you you understand the amount of work you do for your kids. Like, can you thank someone for for doing those things for you? You know what I mean? Like, as a father now, the amount of things you do for your kids, and as a child you don't appreciate it, but now looking back, you must have tremendous appreciation for what your your great mum did. Oh, look, my mum, she virtually dedicated her life to helping me, you know, hopefully do something with my life. So, And that's something that I've, I've never forgotten. Uh, can you repay your mother? And, and, you know, not really, no, but um, you just want to see her happy. You just want to see her proud. Um, and, like, you know, that was, that was the greatest joy I got out of football. It wasn't the medals or it wasn't, you know, I had one year where I won three cars, which was pretty cool, and I was able to give her <laughs> one car. Um, but it, it wasn't anything like that. It was actually the joy that I could bring to her, her face and, and you know, I could see it, you know, there virtually, you know, straight after a game. She'd be in the change room. She'd be super proud and um, she'd have a spring in her step. And then as she'd drive back down to Finlay down the highway, I knew that the locals would really embrace her and, and our football club and, you know, it was very special times and something that I certainly miss now because I don't have that sort of, I've got the kids and I'm sure she's proud of them, but I just don't have anything like that in my life where I can, you know, give her such uh, gratification and satisfaction. doesn't sound with a wonderful mum like that, Shane, that you actually needed a father figure, but has that affected your approach to parenting at all? You've got Four, four kids. You, you got a yep. big brood there. Has it has it affected the way you've approached being a dad? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Because I I want to be the best dad in the world. I think we all do. But um, I think the important thing is you still got to live your life too, and, and still go for your goals. If you've got goals, I know you've got plenty of goals, and I know I do as well. And that's what that's what makes us the people that we are. So um, just getting that balance right. I just want to make sure that every time. I'm having interaction and connection with my kids. It's it's good quality and, and it's really, you know, focused. And, and now that I've got four boys, individual time is really important. So Sundays go out the window when you're trying to get individual t- time with all of them. But, um, you know, it's like anything. You learn as you go. You try and work out. Because I, I think uh, initially I just thought I need to be around 100% of the time and, you know, but it's it's not about that. It's about really contributing when you're there and, and really putting some quality um, time and creating those memories because when I look back on my upbringing, you know, I, I reflect on a few things and it's all about those, those great moments that mum was able to create for me and that's what I obviously want to try and create uh, for my sons. So, uh, and obviously Hawthorne and taking him to the footies, very much a part of that. You know, my oldest boy, Charlie, 
uh, up until he was probably 10 or 11, he'd never seen a losing Hawthorne game, so much so that Clarko <laughs> used to ring and said, can you make sure you bring him along to uh, the, the grand final this week? <laughs> so he had never seen a, a losing Hawthorne uh, game until I took him to round one of few years ago where we got flogged by Geelong by about 120 points uh-huh. and uh, yeah so we uh, we unfortunately stopped the run there but um, but sometimes you know and I made him sit right to the end when we were losing because even though we all wanted to leave it's like no nah, you got to hang in there this is when the team needs you most when things are struggling a bit so um, yeah those football memories are really really important with my kids moving forward. I didn't tell my two kids, Shane, for two years <laughs> that Buddy had left the Hawks and gone to the Sydney Swans, Buddy Franklin. I said he was injured for two years <laughs> just to make sure they were sold on the Hawks because I didn't want them going supporting the Swans. Who did you first play for? Who was your first footy team, Shane, and how old were you? Uh, it was the Finlay Cats in the fifths, yep. you know, so I was in probably, the yeah, I was about seven. Um, I used to try and sneak into the team when I was a little bit younger, but mum wouldn't let me because I was too small. And then, um, and I remember they stuck me on on an away game because mum wasn't there against Collie Ambley, which is the middle of nowhere. Um, and I played a quarter and I actually went okay. But then when mum found out, she went mad at the coaches and said, you know, he was meant to be just running the boundary, not actually playing. <laughs> so that's where it all sort of started for me. But then from then on, mum used to make me wear a helmet every time I played. Um, and before we knew it, the Finley Force, we all had to wear helmets because I think everyone just followed pretty much what my mum said. No, they've got to protect themselves. And then, um, yeah, I, I just love the junior football. It was it was awesome. Every weekend we just live and breathe, you know, kicking the dew off the grass and then waiting around all day to see the Finley Cats play in the seniors, which was always a great community thing but something that you just live for, especially during the winter months. Growing up in the country as well, you, you know, you'd, you'd play your sport and then you'd watch the seniors or the next teams and I remember one of the highlights was the canteen croft. What what were you hitting <laughs> up in the cred? Were you a, a sausage roll man? Were you a red frog man? What were you into? Well, I actually used to do the raffle. So, um, <laughs> so at half time I used to go around collecting tickets and then we'd obviously do the draw. So uh, that's my memories. And then at some stage I got paid to start doing the boundary umpiring. So I thought this is pretty good. So I used to do the boundary umpiring, get a couple of dollars, and then on the way home I'd walk past the fish and chip shop and get some potato cakes with black sauce. <laughs> black sauce? <laughs> oh, I loved it, you know. It was just fantastic. I thought what a great day. How good's that, especially if we won. And we're, we're talking about at the start, again, people won't realise how creative a man you are. Away from footy at school, what type of student were you? At that stage, were you a creative man that, with a brain that kept bubbling away onto the next thing or has that grown with you as you've developed? No, I, I was hopeless at school. Um, <laughs> well, I was. I was. I, I was very distracted. I knew that I really wanted to make football my life um, and school was just sort of guiding me. Um, hopefully in that direction. I never really wanted to go to university. I never really had any passion about anything else apart from, gee, I hope I can be an AFL footballer and I'm going to make sure that I train hard, I do everything I possibly can, I listen to all the coaches and take in every bit of advice I can possibly take in and and hopefully hopefully a little boy from uh, Finlay, New South Wales, can be picked up and fulfil a dream, which is playing AFL football. So uh, that was that was the focus. Um, when I look back now, you know, I think, how on earth did I get through to year 12? Um, 
I, I, when I was drafted to Hawthorne at the end of year 11, I had a, a good year with Assumption College uh, where I went to uh, school for the last three years um, of my uh, year 10, year 11 and year 12. And um, so I had a good year and I kicked over 100 goals, which I'd never done in my life, um, hogging the ball and <laughs> and uh, just trying to kick as many goals as I possibly could. But then the Hawks picked me up, which was a shock. And it was just unbelievable on the draft day when I had no idea that I was going to get drafted. I thought maybe next year, if I have a good year, I'm a chance. And then all of a sudden I was part of the the mighty Hawthorne football team and, and they did say, listen, if you don't want to do year 12 at Assumption College, we'll bring you down to Carey College and you can finish off there. But because I just started with all these new friends that only sort of become, you know, really good friends over the last year or two because they're all new, I, I didn't want to leave them. So I think that was really important where I just said, listen, I just want to finish year 12 with my new friends and um, who are still my friends now, believe it or not, and... I thought that was probably the best way to start my AFL career. So how in the 1991 draft do you find out? What, like what, what was the <laughs> – like, I presume you weren't there, Shane. No, well, do you know what? I, I wasn't sure and I wasn't too phased if I didn't get drafted that year because I thought, oh, year 12, that's the year where you've got to really set yourself. But uh, obviously I had a good year in year 11 and um, – and, yeah, I, I just I thought, oh, well, what will be, will be. But I was actually at the Kiton races um, with my school friends. Yes. And, um, and their parents actually took us across to the races because we were able to have a day out. Um, so we were there, about four or five of my, my good friends and also uh, my mate's parents. And uh, I didn't even know that I'd been drafted, not until there was a call over the PA saying, Shane Crawford, can you come to the secretary's office? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what have I done? And then I got there and my mum was on the phone going, oh, you've been drafted to Hawthorne. So that's how I found out, um, which is, I suppose, a bit different these days. And then I went back to my mates and said, guess what? I just got drafted to Hawthorne. So uh, we celebrated with a lemon squash and then I went back to boarding school. <laughs> so, Shane, you get drafted at the end of 1991. So the Hawks have won a premiership in, what, 83, 86, 88, 89, 91 mm-hmm. against West Coast at Waverley. So you're coming to an absolute powerhouse. As a, How old are you? 17? Yep. Yep, 17. What is it like walking in as a kid from the country into that? Well, you walk into a footy club and there's Chris Langford, you know, Superman. There's Gary Ayres, Conan the Barbarian. You've got Dermot Brereton. You've got John Platt and Jason Dunstall. I was totally a fish out of water. Um, so that was that was pretty scary. I, I must admit, when I was in year 12, I was able to come down and, and have a few training runs and do a little bit of pre-season. And, and when we were playing school football, I was able to come down and and just have that little bit of experience. And I knew um, in my year 12 year, even though that I wasn't involved with the, the football club, um, I did play a couple of reserves games and I, I kicked a few goals in one. And I know that there was a discussion at the time that I might play um, against Essendon at the MCG, but I didn't really know my teammates and I was still at school. And even though they thought, yes, um, he deserves a spot, let's put him in, um, I think they they opted on the, the cautious side because they knew that, oh, hang on, a lot of the senior players don't really know this kid very well. Wow. Um, we're bringing him in from the outside. But that what that did, that gave me 
unbelievable confidence to know, do you know what? I can do this if I, I really want, you know, and obviously, you know, get through year 12, get to the end and then just throw the kitchen sink at be, trying to become an AFL footballer. So that gave me a lot of confidence that the coaching staff thought I was going okay and, um, you know, this little kid from the country town in New South Wales, maybe there's a chance there. So that was that was great to know that and uh, gave me a lot of confidence moving forward. So who was your first game against? My first game was against Melbourne out at Waverley and uh, first quarter, I don't think I touched the footy. I ran around like my head was chopped off. And then, uh, and then I just worked my way into the game after that, the second, third quarter and the last quarter. I was able to kick a goal and we are able to win, beat Melbourne by about 20 points. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a very special day. Back to Croft in a moment. Next up on the show, a woman of incredible strength who has lived a life beyond which most of us could fathom, Danielle Laidley. When do you begin to nourish the real you? When do you start and how do you start buying clothes and when do you go out for the first time as you yeah, um, it's pretty complex stuff. You know, yeah. Um, to keep it quite simplistic, um, through my late teenage years, um, there started to be some nourishment there. Just following the sense of the, the, this feeling and emotion that I would get from it, um, and it's really interesting. Um, and I'm happy to share this. Um, Thank you. Some people. Um, see it as a a, a fetish and, and a sexual fetish at at that, and you know from reading and that I, I I can I can understand that, but for me, it was n- never about that. It was not like oh get turned on to yep. that. It was just this overwhelming feeling of a sense of calmness and and a feeling of of me. Um, and it was always, it was always difficult buying clothes. Whenever you did, and um, it was always, oh, uh, I'm looking for something for my girlfriend. Well, you're a recognisable figure as well. Yes. You're yes. Dean Laidley, the West Coast Eagles yep. star. Yep. That's Danielle Laidley, next up on the show. Let's get back to Shane. Shane, we will get to um, winning but talk to me about losing. As painful as this conversation may be for you as a Hawthorne player and me as a Hawthorne fan at the time, you go to a footy club that's had 20 years pretty much of non-stop success and went through a period in premierships of, was it 91 to 2008, without a premiership. Now, that's that's nothing for normal, for want of a better term, football clubs, but Hawthorne at the time, that was a massive period of no success. Talk to me about losing. Well, no one likes losing, especially when you're training hard, and we did. We trained very, very hard. But uh, when I first arrived, obviously it was a big transition period for the football club because they had so many decorated players, but they're all coming towards the end. And how do you retire them off, um, you know, in the right manner? Um, You know, do you give them an extra couple of years just to go out on their own terms? So, um, yeah, unfortunately we're always competitive, but we were never um, going to reach the, the pinnacle as we sort of all wanted. And then uh, all the superstars had moved on and then we were trying to rebuild and the club were um, trying their very best to get the young talent through and, and 
you know, not all that talent was um, thriving like they were hoping they would, and and it become it become tough. Like it's like every year you you set out, you got a clean slate, and then away you go, you train hard, and and you're, you're very hopeful. But um, you know, we were just never never good enough. Unfortunately, we uh, we probably didn't have the skill level that was required. Um, you know, not everyone had the work ethic that we we all needed, and we probably never teamed together like. Um, like the teams need to if you're going to have success. So, yeah, it was a very tough, uh, tough time. But for me, it wasn't so much initially because it was all new to me. Yes. But um, as the years progressed, oh, I, I got so jealous of watching Essendon play in the grand finals, you know, and, and win all the time. And I'm like, why, why can't we be like that? Why, why can't we be that team? Um, I used to want the club to make it compulsory for everyone to have to go to the grand final because we wouldn't make the finals and everyone would go off overseas and have a break. But I'm like, everyone needs to go to the grand final and realise what we're missing. Um, so you, you have a lot of those thoughts and conversations. Um, obviously in uh, 96, where we almost disappeared as a football club and merged with the Melbourne Football Club, that was a really scary time because I knew that, oh, I was going to have an opportunity if there was a new club created Um what would they say? They, was, they said it was going to be the Melbourne Demons and the Hawthorne uh, Hawks, and you put them together and you get the Dorks, the Demons <laughs> and the Hawks. So um, that was probably never going to work. But in the back of my mind, I thought, you know what, if it does, we're going to take the best 22 young kids from Hawthorne and the best 20, you know, from Melbourne, and it's going to be a pretty good side. Maybe we'll win a premiership. So it was a very um, tough time, especially for the older players, because they knew that, if this is going to happen, their careers have ended straight away. And um, and when I look back now, that was just, that epitomises what Hawthorne's all about. After a half-hour delay, anti-merger leader and former club great Don Scott took several minutes to calm the big crowd. But the strongest feelings were aired by former Hawthorne Premiership coach Alan Jeans. For 10 years, 10 years, I've been telling you this was going to happen. After pro-merger arguments and many rowdy questions, club chairman called for the members to cast their votes, a process which will go well into the night. A result isn't expected till tomorrow at the earliest. Dean Pelton, Seven Nightly News. Supporters saying, no, we're not going to take this. Uh, great people coming and getting on board with Ian Dicker, sort of leading the way and, and guiding the club from a business point of view. And, and the players being loyal because we knew at the time that... Um, we probably were going to struggle and not win a lot of games and it was going to be tough. We knew that money wasn't going to be spent on getting players to our club and updating facilities and so forth. Um, they had to focus on uh, saving the club off the field. So we knew there was going to be some tough times, but um, to the credit of everyone that stuck around, um, we just kept chipping away, kept trying to you know, be proud of who we are and where we're going and... Um, we started to to slowly come out of that, having you know a few moments where we're really proud of, um, but never ever getting to uh, the peak, which is obviously winning a grand final. We won a night grand final, uh, <laughs> but I can assure you that didn't satisfy me one bit. But in those days, <laughs> any grand final was a good grand final. I, I don't know how long since you've had a look at it. I actually watched it last night. The um, the the amazing work that um, Dicko did with. Uh, Yadoko, all areas Shane Crawford exposed, um, which is 
reality TV before reality TV. They say because I'm doing bits and pieces in the media with Channel 9 and so forth that, you know, I'm not 100% committed to it, which is absolute bullshit. Football, yes, you put everything into it, but you've got to have other things in your life. You've got to be able to work towards life after football and you've just got to have something else so that you're not thinking about football 100% of the time. If you do, you go mad. You need other things in your life. Just looking again, we were talking about shots at the start. You're, you're running at one stage around a camera with what now would be a GoPro and, and yeah. there's swabby behind-the-scenes audio, which, you know, Dicko's brother's gone and done on. It, it was revolutionary in the way it was put together, but it showed a young man. So what are you in, when's that, sort of 99-ish, I guess? So you're a young man just full of want and desire to succeed, but the organisation you're involved with isn't succeeding and you are just oozing frustration, anger. Like you, It's not you, but you look like a really angry fella in part to that, mate. I don't know why I seem to have attracted more media attention than ever before. I don't know from the House of Bulger. I think there's a bit too much bulging going on. I agree with the that. The ball mate. now on the half. I'm very proud to be the captain of the Hawthorne Football Club. And I'm doing and will continue to do everything I can to ensure myself and my teammates play at the highest possible standards. Football is my number one priority. I put everything into football. I train as hard as I possibly can. I prepare better than anyone else. And on game day, I couldn't be more focused than anyone else. Yeah, you take it personal, you really do, especially if you're proud and, and you know, that's where you want to go and you, you know that things are stopping you and you're not doing things as well as you should be and, and from an organisation, we can do things better. But um, I suppose you live and learn through all those situations and hopefully whenever you're in a situation down the track, you can work through them a lot better. But um, that was... Yeah, it was very controversial at the time because... It was. And, and the reason I was happy to do it, Rob Dixon was a very good friend of mine and I miss him and I think about him a lot. Um, and unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident. And um, we had a great relationship, um, you know, a great friendship, someone who I really trusted, but someone who I had a real connection with because of, um, you know, just the way that he wanted to bring things to life and make content and he was a risk taker, um, the way that he would do things. Like before games, he would come up to me, he goes, oh, can you run out with this football and hold on to it, but don't kick it? And I'm like, why? And he goes, I've put a camera in it. <laughs> so here I am running out before a game, I've got this camera. Really? And he goes, don't handball, yeah, don't handball it to anyone, don't kick it to anyone. I'm like, don't put me in this position. Um, but what, the reason I wanted to do it at the time, AFL footballers were getting a real bad rap and... And there's a lot of goodness in AFL mm. footballers, you know, today, but even back in my day, there were so many that were doing a lot of charity work, a lot of great stuff in the communities and, and in their local areas. Um, there was some re- I played with some highly intelligent footballers, um, not only on the field, but off the field, you know, they are now CEOs of businesses and, and you know, you don't get there unless you really know what you're doing and... I just thought we got a really bad rap. Um, so I was happy to just be an open book and just show how it was, um, if we're allowed to. And and that's what we, we pretty much did. We just followed the year and, and let things unfold and, 
And that year was a, a real sort of bumpy journey, you know, the, the media out to chop your head off and me being a captain, um, you know, captains these days, um, you know, a bit more sanitised and and sort of locked away, whereas, I, I don't know, I just got a bit of go on me and I sort of, yeah, I'm happy to try things and I needed to do other things away from football um, and some of that being media, so that wasn't seen um as a real positive thing from the media, it looked like the captain of Hawthorne's mucking around and having too much how you, fun. How did you deal with that criticism, mate? Because it was, right, the footy club's losing, he's the captain, he's making documentaries, he's on the football show, etc. he needs to get back to footy, which is a, a 1990s view. Like 2020, mate, you, yeah. you've got no worries at all, but it's uh, you're pioneering that position in some ways. How did you deal with the criticism? And there was a lot of it. Yeah, and it's very much an old school attitude. It's like you you must focus on the one thing. But to be honest, like footballers, and, and you speak to a lot of footballers, there's only so much training you can do. There's only so many meetings and massages and, and so much preparation you can do. And then you need to take your head into a different space. And that's why I think all the football clubs do it really, really well these days. Um, not only with the leadership groups, because they share the responsibility, but making sure every player is developing away from the football field, whether it be through education, through, you know, through university, through workplace programs. Uh, I just think they do a great job, and it does. It gets them mixing in different circles. It gets them developing a real passion and gives them a real sort of insight to what life is away from football because sometimes when it's just all football, and we had a stage there at Hawthorne where we went football professional 24 hours a day, and do you know what? Our performance went down <laughs> because we were just hanging around the footy club when there was no need for us to get in, train hard, take it all in, get out, go away. And that's the Alison Clarkson mentality today. Get in, focus, train with intensity, get the best out of yourself, get out of here. I don't want to see you until tomorrow afternoon, you know. So, um, yeah, that's and, – and that's the thing. I reckon, When I look back on my career, I started when – you know, it was real old school from a training point of view. We used to lift bricks and do all sorts of things and run on the roads. Um, and then we came through with a real professional attitude where we wanted to be full-time footballers. And then that changed where it gave us great balance. But then the real sports science um, side of things came into it with the fitness coaching and individualised programs, you know, from weights and running and and so forth. But when I look um, towards my first half of my career... I was just training myself into the ground. But what that did, even though that might have been wrong at times, um, and I was overtraining, I was doing stuff away from the footy club, which was wrong, but that gave me confidence. And I think confidence is a super important um, ingredient if you are going to hopefully have success and a bit of individual success along the way because it just enables you to have that belief and belief is everything when it comes to footy. You, you talk about training and, you know, there's legendary stories of... You at Waverley Park, and I've seen it as as a Hawthorne fan at uni, sitting on those bloody cold seats out there in the rain at Waverley Park on on the wooden seats, and just seeing you run up and down and up and down. And when you'd play the Saints, it'd be you and Harvey running up and down, almost sprinting a, a race within a game to wear each other out. At its point when you said you were training too much, what were you doing? How hard were you training? What were you doing above and beyond? Well, do you know what happened early in my career? Um, Alan Jeans. Alan Jeans was originally from where I grew up, Finlay Tokemore, and um, he had, you know, he was friends with my grandma, 
So there was a family connection there. My mum knew Alan Jeans really well. So um, I think even during my school days, he watched me a few times. So I think he might have been a part of actually getting me to Hawthorne. Um, so he came down and watched training. And um, because I had that friendship, I went over to him and I said, oh, how do you think I trained? And he said, not hard enough. Hmm. And I said, okay, why do you say that? And, and I, at the time, I was doing lots of training, but out on the track when the footballs came out and when you'd, you're kicking to a position or to, to a cone, you've run through as hard as you possibly can. When you've got the footy, you go as fast as you possibly can, like a game. And he said, you're not doing that. He said, have a look at Tony Hall, have a look at Darren Pritchard, have a look how hard they run in between the drills and it's like they're playing a game. And so that totally changed me, that one conversation straight away. And if anything, that was so influential on me hopefully getting the best out of myself wow. because I trained the way that I uh, trained. I trained with a real intensity uh, every time, you know, the footballers come out. And, and you see it today, like the footballers get out there, they blow their whistle, they go, boys, next 10 minutes, 100%. If there's tackles to be made, you make them, you play it like it's a real game and that's that's what happens. That's why the skill level's gone through the roof. So that was, that was a real important um, connection that I had with Alan Jeans early on and, um, and away I went. But the problem was I was doing a lot of stuff away from the footy club, so you do all your training and your weights, but then even a night before a game I'd go for a five, six K run. The night before the a block. game. Yeah, and that was just uh, yeah, and, and what it was actually doing and I didn't realise at the time, but that was taking the edge off me. That was flattening me. Um you obviously get up the next day ready to go and you finish the game after chasing you know, playing St Kilda and you're running after Robert Harvey all day and you're just thinking, oh, I feel so exhausted. Um, so I was doing it the wrong way. You know, I wasn't getting the most out of myself and wasn't till towards probably the second half of my career that started to do it a bit different and uh, and really just focus on those those quality sessions and, and reduce the, uh, the overtraining away from footy. In that period of where you were taking running to a whole nother level, so it's deep in a quarter and you're absolutely exhausted. Where would you take yourself mentally and how would you keep going? Well, it was it was a hard one because, like, even to this day, people go, oh, did you love it? How good was it? And I'm like, oh, I loved it. I loved the team thing. I, I love the connection with each other before we run out. I love, you know, those satisfying wins. But I, I knew I knew that I had to run myself into the ground and feel sick virtually throwing up by the end of every game, you know, or the end of every quarter. I knew that if I come off feeling okay, I haven't worked hard enough and it's no point being out there. So mentally that becomes a very hard thing. When you think about it, oh, I'm going to go for a run, but you know that you've got to run until you virtually can't breathe anymore and you're virtually going to throw up your breakfast. That becomes that becomes a mental thing that uh, you really mm. have to you know, focus on. But I think all the training that I did and all the overtraining, it actually gave me just that confidence that when things get really tough, I know, okay, Christmas Day, I'm training. And I know hopefully my opposition aren't training. So that's an advantage, you know, just all those little things that you use from the power of the mind, um, that became really, really important for me. And even if it wasn't helping, um, I felt the placebo effect was helping and, um, you know, you just take your mind that you need to hurt. This is a tough game. It's a professional game. You need to hurt and um, 
And they were the most satisfying things when you could virtually stand up at the end of a game, you've had a win, you're singing the song, you're around each other. It, it's That's as rewarding as you could possibly get because you know you've emptied out everything that you possibly have. You won a Brownlow medal, Shane. I declare Shane Crawford the winner of the 1999 Brownlow medal. What is the conversation with your mum? And I only ask you that because you talked about your mum at the start. Like, what do you say to your mum? What does your mum say to you in that period where you're announced as the best player in the competition? Well, it's very nerve-wracking because uh, I was actually asked if I wanted to take my mum along and it was in Sydney for the first time and the only time uh, they ever went to Sydney. And, and I said, no, 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 because... I was favourite, and I know what my mum's like. She's like, if he doesn't win, I think it's, you know. And I just didn't need that pressure. I'm like, I don't need this pressure. <laughs> I like, I've got my fingers crossed. I'm hoping that I win because who doesn't want to win the Brownlow medal? Um, but, look, the, the biggest thing out of that, and even Finlay today, you drive through Finlay and there's a sign as you drive in, you know, uh, welcome to Crawford Town, you know, home of the yes. Brownlow medalist. Um, so that, that's that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool that you know your your old town doesn't forget and has that mm-hmm. connection. But I remember on the night Bruce McAvaney, I got up and I uh, was announced as the winner, and they crossed to the Finley RSL Club. Diane's with us from Finley right now, Shane. She's yeah. able to talk to you. She's uh, there. She is in the New South Wales country town of Finley. So. Uh, Mum's made a lot of sacrifices. It must have been pretty tough for Mum as a single mum bringing you and your brothers up. You got a word or two to say to her right now? Actually, Karen, I'm going to start crying. Football is hard. you cry? <laughs> I'll, you can cry as much as you like. And my mum was there. <laughs> I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Uh, my grandfather was there. All my uh, friends and family, the local community were in the background. And I'm like, that's, that's what it was about. You know, for me, to bring joy... It's like, yeah, of course, I'm super proud. I like, I'm, you know, I give myself a pat on the back. Well done, you work your absolute butt off, you know, and and it's a great individual achievement. But just to see the flow-on effects that it had with the town, with my mum, it was, yeah, it was a really special time. That is the end of Shane Crawford, part A. Much love in part B.